0: So we're going to camp out in Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 20. So if you have a Bible, please open up to there. That would be 720 in the seatback Bibles in front of you. So as some of you all know, for a little over a year now, I've been engaged in, in graduate studies, uh, specifically with Christian apologetics. And it's, it's a good thing, so what I'm about to say, don't, don't get me wrong. But during this period, I've found myself intellectualizing God. In my heart, my mind, I've never stopped believing the gospel, but if you would really look in the depths of my soul, I really have. I've grown skeptical that God could actually speak to me personally through his word and that he would want to. And so I I proceeded in this way for, for several months, even though I was still here and worshiping with you all. But it was one night that God allowed me to finally feel the starvation that was going on in my soul, and it, and it was late at night. So you know all the excuses come up that I, I can deal with it tomorrow in the morning. I'll get my evening straightened out and I'll take care of this. But God kept thrusting me forward that I, I could not deny it. So I, I went outside and I sat on our patio and I grabbed my Bible. I'm unusually fairly regimented with reading God's word, but to be honest here, the wheels had just fallen off the cart. I had no idea where where I was going to go. So familiarity set in, and I went to Isaiah 1. It's a passage I'm familiar with. I spent a lot of my time in college going over through, and I started reading it. And as I got to verse 10 and saw how Israelites were hiding their hearts from God and God was calling them out, it hit me that I was doing the same thing. I, I, I could see that I, I was heading this way, God over here, and I was heading this way away from him, him who is all satisfying. And I was going in this illogical manner, and I, and I couldn't believe it. Like, God, me? No. No, not me. But yes, I was doing this. But right, right, right there, I heard God's voice say, Elijah, there is no need to do that. I want your heart. And so Isaiah's message is this today. Bring your sinful heart out of hiding and into the Lord's hands. That is Isaiah's message to us today. And I pray as we go through his word that we all would hear it. That if you've never put your faith in Christ that you would do it today for today is the day of salvation. And if you have already, that you would continue to live a life of repentance. So let us go by starting reading in verse one. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So right away, Isaiah opens up his book by giving us the historical context. By this time, the 12 sons of Jacob, which we know as Israel, for that was their father's name, have been separated for close to 200 years. You have the 10 tribes in the north called Israel and the two tribes in the south called Judah. And Isaiah was to be a prophet to the tribe of Judah because Assyria, the the hegemonic power of the day, had been put to sleep. They were more focused on domestic affairs. And then Babylon was still a backwater province. So in the midst of this, Judah was politically confident. They had political peace. They had economic prosperity. And in in light of that, they had this external compliance with the law that they were meeting. So they took all of these factors and they believed that they were right with God. But in reality, their hearts were terribly far. So with the death of King Uzziah, one of the longest reigning kings in the whole history of the 12 tribes, God is bringing judgment. He is waking up Assyria from its slumber and he is building up Babylon in the background. But God does not let the story stop there. He calls up Isaiah, who we don't know a lot about, maybe part of the priestly court. But he calls Isaiah into the situation to preach judgment. But salvation, if you would only turn and repent. So let us pick up reading again in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And so Isaiah opens up his oracle with a phrase of hero heavens and hero earth. And it's a phrase pulled right out of the pages of Deuteronomy so that any Judean that would have heard this in Isaiah's time would have gone right back to Deuteronomy. And we know Deuteronomy is the last book of the Torah where also Moses' sermon to the Israelites, right? The Israelites were about to head into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua because Moses sinned. And God said, you will not lead my people into the promised land. And so Moses gathers the, the sons of Israel and he preaches a sermon to them. And he reminds them of God's faithfulness up to this point and their need to be obedient to God in the covenant. And in these, in these pages, we find in chapter 4 and chapter 32, this phrase, hero heaven and hero earth. And each time it's used by Moses to call upon the heavens and call upon the earth as a witness against the reality of Israel's depravity, that surely when they're in the land, they will sin against God. But yet in the midst of that, God is faithful. So Isaiah takes Moses' phrase for the very reason of calling the Judeans, like lining up proverbially and reminded them, open their eyes so when you see the heavens and when you see the earth, you'll be reminded of your depravity, your need for God, but also of God's mercy. And so As we read this and see how the heavens and earth were to focus, to be this visual cue to the sons of Israel, I can't help but think that that to us new covenant believers today, that the cross is to be the same way. But in reality, has the cross become this vague religious symbol that we wear around our necks so we don't really have to live this life of sacrifice, we can just kind of proclaim it without saying it. But in reality, the cross points to our absolute perversity that that God had to go and get nails stuck into his wrists. But in the midst of that, God's grace is unending for all who would draw near the, the gospel. But have we forgotten that? Is the cross just empty and void to us? So let's keep reading, starting in verse 5, seeing God's charges against Judah. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out, we're bound up, we're softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughters of Zion is, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. And become like Gomorrah. And so Isaiah draws Judah close and gives them the indictment, gives them the diagnosis. Right in the last section we see that they're described as revolting against the Lord. And the picture that we get of that is is sin, is is personal antagonism, it's it's personal rejection of God. There's, There's no gray area there right? It's woven into our very fiber of our being, what the Greeks called the teleos, our our very end and purpose is to know God, to love God. That's what we were created for. And so when we reject that, we're we're not just rejecting some vague purpose, but we're rejecting a person. We're, We're rejecting our creator who wants to know us and who wants us to know him. And Isaiah is saying that They're revolting against the Lord primarily because that is coming from a deprived source. Their actions flow from who they fundamentally are. And who they fundamentally are is that they have a sinful heart. And by heart, what scripture means is that the totality of a person, it's the essence of who someone is describing all their emotions, all who they are, compacting this one phrase, heart. And then when we say sinful, we see that sin, right? This personal rejection of God. So when Israel is said to have a sinful heart, it's not just that they sin, but that they're in a state of sin. They're in a constant state of rejecting God, of being away from God. Their hearts are out of alignment with their creator. That's what it means to have a sinful heart. And Isaiah uses four images to show this the first image is that there's no soundness in them there's just bruises and raw wounds and they're festering they're they're not being healed the second picture is the picture of the deuteronomic curses falling upon them them being kicked out upon the land foreigners coming into the land right because that's what moses said if you disobey the lord if you are not faithful to the covenant this will happen you'll be kicked out and foreigners will inhabit the land The third picture is we have that Zion, the David city, Jerusalem, the city of peace to be a light to the nations is like a cucumber shack, right? So when the Israelites would would go into the harvest season, they would build these shacks and then when they would be gone, the shacks would stay there, but they had no purpose. They had no meaning. They weren't used. And then the last and maybe the most pungent purpose picture that that Israel, the very people of God, are no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the reality is, is we have a sinful heart. We're out of alignment with our creator. Now, it may be said that empirical evidence simply does not affirm this. Right when we... We look at non-believers, sometimes they're more ethical than believers. Sometimes they're more hospitable than believers. They open your homes to them and they they love on you and they serve you as if you're one of theirs. So so what do you mean that we have a sinful heart where what theologians call total depravity? What, What do you mean by that? Well, first we need to see that total depravity is primarily an indictment vertically. Meaning we're out of out of access with God. And don't only horizontally do our actions flow out. So everything that we do is not done in faith. Everything that we do is not to glorify, not to worship, not to love God. So as good as our actions are and may look, they actually are nothing but filthy rags and that's what God goes on to say in Isaiah. In and in a helpful picture of this is creation, right? When, when sin enters creation, it throws creation off its axis. And now it's inevitably heading towards destruction. It's this unalterable path. But in creation, we still see beauty. We still see the Himalayan mountains. We, we still see the Mediterranean seas. We still see pristine beaches. We see profound moments of beauty in creation. But none of those moments can take creation off its intended course, off its intended axis. None of those moments can save creation. And just like humanity, our hearts are going away from the Lord, out of access with them, so we're heading towards destruction. But yet we see that humans have profound intellect. They have a sense of what is right, what is wrong. We see humans love and serve one another, but yet, None of those moments can take humans off this path of destruction. None of those moments. So the reality that Isaiah has given us is that we have sinful heart, but he doesn't stop there. He goes forward and anticipates humanity's move, our propensity to hide sinful heart so let's pick up back reading starting in verse 10 hear the word of the Lord you rulers of Sodom give ear to the teaching of our God you people of Gomorrah what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices says the Lord I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings to me, Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and a con of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are are full of blood. And so in this section of the passage, we we see clearly that God, for for whatever reason, is indicting Judah for their use of the law. Now the question naturally arises, well, God, aren't there periods of time in biblical history that you indict Judah and Israel for not using the law? So, So what is going on here? Well, we know that God gave the law, and the law is good. And right in Deuteronomy, he demanded obedience to it. So we know that's not that God is mad at them for just following the law. But he's also not mad at them for the second option, which could be, is it syncretism? Are they mixing in Judaic practices from the Mosaic Covenant with pagan practices? Well, when we look at the historical context and we see the kings that Isaiah prophesies under, we see... Uh, We see Uzziah all the way to Hezekiah. This was a period marked by profound obedience to the law. Now, the only king in that period who did not comply with that was Ahaz. But Ahaz's reign was was not syncretic. It was overtly pagan. When we go to 2 Chronicles 28 and 29, we see that he closed the temple. So there was no burning of incense, there was no sacrifices, there was no feasts. there was no celebration of any of the feasts. So the, the language that we find in Isaiah simply does not meet the historical reality of Ahaz's reign. So that leaves us with the conclusion that God is indicting Israel for their rote use of the law. They were using the law not to foster piety, but to foster pride. Right, God gave the law not as a, a separate means of salvation, but in continuation with the Abrahamic covenant. It was to outline what was demanded of God's people. It had these external rights that showed them their sinful state but yet they could never meet up to these standards. So when they didn't meet up to these standards, they would take a hold of the sacrificial system that God gave and they would come through it to God in repentance, pleading for him for their forgiveness, pleading for the day that he would finally absolve their sin once and for all. The law was to foster piety, not pride. But Israel instead, Judah instead, was using the law to hide their heart, to hide their heart from God, to hide their need from God. God says, this trampling of my courts. Now we need to see that we hide our hearts. It's not just in the eighth century, some random people that hide their hearts, but it's all of humanity that hides their hearts. Now, if you've never put your faith in Christ, I know it may be said that how can we even have a knowledge of God, let alone why would I hide my heart from him? I just want God to reveal himself to me. Well, well, scripture is clear in Romans 1 that all men are created with the knowledge of their creator, yet they suppress that knowledge. So that tells us that humanity's life is a life of suppression apart from the Lord. And when we look at society and culture, think about the manifold ways that which we do this think about all the health as of late now being healthy is great but there seems to be this profound fixation upon it and I can't help but shake is is that us trying to scrub ourselves clean of this guilty sense that we feel this unclean sense that we feel we're thinking about this this loving of political activism to the extreme. Is that an attempt to completely recreate society so we can absolve ourselves of the myth that there is something more than just something naturally wrong with man? Or think about the New Age movement, how we have this spiritual reality in us, right, having a spirit, having a soul, but we don't want accountability. We don't want God with that spirituality, so we create this vague religion that allows us to feel those demands, but never once are we called to worship and submit to God. Or think about the ways we deny our intrinsic worth, right? Because if we're seen to have intrinsic worth, that must mean there's one who puts that intrinsic worth upon us. But think about how we deny that intrinsic worth as a culture through abortion and the ways that we'd redefine our gender. Believers, we're indicted as well. We hide our hearts. Have we allowed attendance at church and, and giving and our service even at church to absolve us from giving our day the day sacrifice to the Lord, giving every day to the Lord as, as yours God, or have we just kept it contained on Sunday? Do we use prefabricated language to talk about like God is moving in our hearts but in reality, we're just using template language that deceives ourselves and others. Is the God that we serve and the God in our hearts and our minds really the God of Scripture? Or is it more akin to the American God? The God who does not deserve sacrifice, but all that He deserves, all that He demands is that you go out and fulfill the American dream. Or prayer. Simply, do we have a prayer life? Modern Reformation Magazine does these prayer seminars, and through them they've basically concluded that 85% of Christians in the churches that they've interviewed do not have a prayer life. Is that us? Is that us? So the reality is, is we hide our hearts, every single one of us at some point in our life. But the good news is we need not do so. We need not do so. And Isaiah is about to tell us why. So let us pick up reading, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I'm sorry, I was just reading the wrong verses. (laughs) Let us start in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. (laughs) Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so in the midst of Judah hiding their heart from God, in the midst of them having a sinful heart but denying it, God lays out the remedy. And that remedy is repentance. The picture that that we get is that God is saying, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean now the language there does not refer to our ability to intrinsically cleanse ourselves. Rather, it refers to taking of hold the means that God has given right in the law to create a heart of repentance. So use the law according to its functional, to its actual purpose. And the picture that we get of repentance, all that repentance means is that we see that we tend to center our lives around ourselves And then seeing that, hating that, and then moving, and then centering our lives around God. That is all that repentance means, hating, seeing your sin, hating your sin, and then turning and pleading to God for his mercy. Nonbeliever, if you've never put your faith in Christ, I plead with you to see that you live in light of a holy God and after you you leave here you you can't escape God's not just in this building where he's not just some figment of our imagination but he's all around and you were created to know him And your ability to love, your ability to think, your ability to speak, your ability to emotionally and relationally connect is not random, but it's designed into you because God wants to know you, God wants to speak to you, God wants to love you, God wants to connect with you. But you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to get down with the Lord and say, Lord, ask, I ask for your forgiveness. You have to, there is no other way because the other way is destruction. That is hard to swallow and that's hard to say, but that is it. That is it. Believer, I, I pray that as we read this passage and we see this passage, that we wouldn't say that repentance is just for the non believer or repentance is for the spiritually immature, but no, rather that we see we need to live a life of repentance. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry for what I've done, kind of this reactive stance, but it's proactive. It's saying, God, I know the propensity of my heart to wander each and every day. Would you please relieve me of that? Each and every day, God, I want you, I want your grace because you're more than me. And left to myself, I will absolutely destroy myself. God, give me your grace. Because you're better than life itself, Jesus. You're better than life itself. We need to repent. We need to repent. But, but in the midst of that, what's your hope that we have? I mean, is repentance is something that we like kind of shake, shake this instrument at God and hope that rain comes down? Is that where repentance is? No, No, God says that, Surely if you repent, it is effective. It is done. You will be made white as snow. And as we see Isaiah start in chapter 1, and he builds up to this climax in his book, in Isaiah 53, we have the suffering servant. God's servant will come. And he will bear our iniquities. He will bear our burdens, right? The guilt that we have, the debt that we must pay for having our hearts out of alignment with the Lord, Jesus took upon himself and bore it. The picture that we hit is that he was made a guilt offering. And the guilt offering was always made when the holy was desecrated. And specifically, we see in Leviticus 8 that when a leper contracted a skin disease, they would go out outside the camp. Right, this picture of being removed from God's presence. And before they could be brought back in, they had to make a guilt offering. They had to have it applied to them, to be made right with the Lord, to be brought back into his presence. And so Jesus gives us the picture that he was our guilt offering. The sin that we have, the debt that we have for being pushed out of God's presence because of our sin, because of our rejection of him, Jesus paid that. He was made a leper. He was stricken is the language of Isaiah 53. So if you've never met Jesus, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I beg you today is a day of salvation. The work of the cross has been done. And let us see that Jesus is not just some figment of our imagination, but but he is the living God who became a man, who lived, who died, and rose from the grave, and he wants your heart. So I plead with you to put your faith in him. And believer, keep loving Jesus. May we keep running Jesus after Jesus as we go into this new year. May we have a profound shift in our lives to love Jesus more, to run after Jesus more, and know he will give us the grace to do so. Because the gospel's not just to be saved, but the gospel is to be continually applied in our lives that we would be made more like. Jesus, each and every day. Don't grow sick of the gospel. And so I pray today that all of us, each and every single one of us, would heed to God's word to take our sinful heart out of hiding and to bring it into the hands of the Lord because there, there is joy unending. There is joy unending in our Savior's hands. Let us pray. Father, you are merciful. You're good. And so we love you. We love you. And Holy Spirit, would you just work in our lives that we would fall into head over heels in love with you and live this life of repentance where every day we turn to you for your grace. And we never hide our hearts and we never think that you're some cruel God who just wants to expose us to mock us. But you're a God who wants to expose us so you can't save us. In your name, Jesus. Amen.